Welcome to the Aquatic Mammals Journal Historical Perspectives podcast series. The HP series, as we call it, is an ever-growing body of work that consists of more than 100 interviews with scientists, researchers, animal trainers, legislators, veterinarians, artists, and more who help to found and continue to shape the marine mammal field. I am your host, John Anderson. Today, I'm going to revisit a conversation that I had in 2008 with a senior member of the marine mammal science community, Dr. Robert Gisner. Following his postdoctoral studies at the University of California, Dr. Gisner took a research position with the U.S. Navy Marine Mammal Program in Hawaii, following that, the Office of Naval Research, and then finally, to the Living Marine Resource Program. Bob also served as a scientific program director for the U.S. Marine Mammal Commission, which is where I met him. His early interest in marine mammal behavior led to his initial animal behavior studies with seals and sea lions in behavioral ecology, a then relatively new field looking at how behavior is shaped by the environment. His work also included echolocation, underwater acoustics, biosonar, and development of data logging tags. Okay, that's enough of me talking. Let's listen to what Dr. Gisner had to say in his own words about getting started, studying with Ron Schusterman, and how his career path unfolded. Well, I got started with marine mammals. In some respects, I got started with marine mammals when I was probably about five, six years old because uh, my grandparents had a little uh, shacky kind of cabin near the beach and we would go on weekends and we'd go run around in the tide pools like kids will and you know handle starfish and all that kind of stuff. And there were seals on the rocks and things like that. And so I was always kind of aware of marine mammals, but just in the general sense of I love the ocean and marine biology and so on. And it really wasn't until college that I kind of started to focus in on marine biology. Uh, prior to that, I kind of wanted to be a forest ranger because uh, I spent a lot of time in the mountains and backpacking and so on. And you'd meet these backcountry rangers and they'd be riding along on their horse and they'd have their fly rod all set up and ready to go fly fishing. And I thought that's all they did. And it seemed like a pretty good job. But really it was college that I focused in on marine mammals and got very excited about them. Well, I got interested in marine mammals uh, because of a professor I had um, where I went to school, which was Cal State Hayward. It's now Cal State East Bay. And that professor's name was Ron Schusterman. And Ron uh, was studying the senses of seals and sea lions, uh, hearing and vision. And he taught uh, a class in animal behavior at Cal State Hayward. Uh, which I took as one of my first elective classes, and I was just hooked. I loved animal behavior. And so he said, uh, well, why don't you do an independent study? Uh, because I had enough credits to graduate, and I was kind of looking for other kinds of things to do um, that were interesting to me. And he said, well, there's this independent study program. I didn't realize at the time that he got paid <laughs> to sponsor independent studies, that he gets teaching credits for that. So it wasn't a completely altruistic act, but, um, we, but we were both in agreement that he wanted me to do something with animal behavior with seals, and I wanted to do something with animal behavior in marine mammals. And so he said, well, why don't you uh, um, 
it was for spring, and he said, well, why don't you look at harbor seals? The harbor seals are having their pups and so on. Well, by the time we got this all sorted out, what was I going to do or whatever, the harbor seal pupping season was over. He said, not to worry, uh, stellar sea lions are you know, next in the, in the sequence or whatever. So I'll set this thing up where you go over to UC Santa Cruz and they'll take you out to Anya Nuevo Island and you can look at these sea lions. And in the meantime, read these, uh, Roger Gentry's dissertation and Finn Sandegren. Uh, his master's thesis and so on. So I read these things and it seemed very interesting. I mean, sea lions are really exciting. You know, they're doing everything. They're right there on the beach. They're giving birth, they're mating, they fights, there's, you know, the whole thing. It's very dramatic. And so I went and saw this thing and I was hooked. You know, it was just like watching the most dramatic play you had ever seen in your life, staged for your benefit alone. And these animals are all just living out all the important aspects of their life right there in front of you. And because I had read these theses, these very good um, theses about the animals, um, I could follow everything you know, right away from, uh, from the first uh, day that I was out there. And it was just super exciting. And I was hooked. That was it. When I was studying the sea lions, it, it kind of veered me in a direction in animal behavior that I was already interested in, which had to do with um, social behavior and how the environment shapes that social behavior, behavioral ecology. Um, at that time, uh, and this was about 1974, uh, the term behavioral ecology was really kind of new. You know, now there's a journal, behavioral ecology and so on, but that was some years to come. So I, I was very fortunate in that I kind of hit on this aspect of animal behavior and its relationship to ecology really as it was just sort of starting to come together. In my career, I've jumped around a lot from that initial beginning with uh, behavioral ecology. And at least for uh, my doctoral dissertation and so on, I stuck with the stellar sea lions. I went to work with uh, Bernie LaBeouf to do my uh, PhD at UC Santa Cruz. And Bernie was, of course, working on elephant seals. So I spent some of my year working with the elephant seals and some of my year working with the sea lions. So it was very fortunate. Elephant seals breed in the winter and stellar sea lions breed in the summer and that kept me uh, out of the house at least about six months out of the year. But it was all about seals and sea lions um, on the beach, their breeding behavior, um, and then how the environment shaped that. In, in the last year that I was working on my uh, dissertation research, I had an opportunity to go to Alaska and uh, study the stellar sea lions up there on a cobble beach. Most places they breed are rocky um, and they have very well-defined territories and they use the edges of the rocks and tide pools and other features of their environment that are pretty uh, intransitory to mark out these sharply defined territories. And even as males change in and out, the boundaries of the territories tend to remain fairly constant, which is unlike some other seals and sea lions that breed on sand, where everything kind of moves around and is fluid, and the tides influence uh, uh, where the animals are and what they're going to do. So I, uh, I wanted to go see how sea lions behaved uh, in Alaska on a cobbled beach and it was sort of halfway in between. They try to anchor their territories on boulders that stuck out of the beach and things like that. But as the tides went in and came out, and in Alaska those are 15, 20 foot tides, uh, they would move you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 yards up and down. Everybody would just move sort of together up and down. 
Of course, the females determine what's going to happen. They want to be near the, the water. So as they moved, there wasn't anybody that was going to stop them. They wanted to be near the water. And then when the water came up too high, they'd move up the beach. And the males would do their best to stick with them. But usually at high tide, some of the guys were left sort of floating around. And some of the guys at low tide were sitting way up on the beach all alone by themselves. So it was really fascinating. But I had started with Ron Schusterman. And Ron was a lab guy who did uh, basically sensory psychophysics. Uh, he was very interested in animal behavior and social behavior, but his research itself was uh, um, very much in the lab oriented. And so the first real paying job I'd had as an undergraduate student was helping uh, Ron and uh, a former student of his, Patrick Moore, um, do a audiogram for a northern fur seal. So I'd had a flavor for the lab stuff uh, before I did uh, this field work. And then after I finished my PhD, uh, Ron approached me and said, I'm doing a project in uh, animal language learning and cognition, uh, complex learning, uh, and I have a postdoctoral position. Uh, do you want to do that? And I said, yes, you know, I'd be very interested in doing that. And so I went back to work with Ron and did a postdoc with Ron. And that was almost all in the lab. And we did do some field stuff having to do with uh, uh, mother-pup bond kinds of things, uh, which we were very interested in um, because we'd get some young animals and we'd see these very powerful uh, social bonds between their trainers and, and themselves and so on. So we were kind of curious how all that worked. But most of it was... Uh, traditional sort of animal training kinds of work, reinforcement-based learning, but trying to build up very complex behaviors with uh, symbolic relationships between uh, uh, signs and, and then outcomes and things like that. Uh, and it was fascinating work, and it took me in a very, very different direction. Um, and, and during that time, I was also serving on the Stellar Sea Lion Recovery Team, Species Recovery Team, because Ironically, the species of sea lion that I was studying as a graduate student, uh, which was a, a sea lion that was in the best shape of almost any species on Earth, had in the meantime uh, crashed dramatically, while other sea lion populations were uh, recovering from uh, hunting and bounty uh, kinds of things in the early 20th century and late 19th century. So we were very puzzled by that, and so we had a... Uh, a recovery teams trying to figure out well what's going wrong and how do we stop this uh, before the animals are gone. So I was still working on sea lion ecology things and that although I was working on the uh, my primary work was on this uh, cognition and echolocation and, and that kind of stuff that learning work. So I've always sort of done both things done field work and, and then done the lab work and I, I think there's a complementarity there. Um, and then after that, after my postdoc was over, um, uh, the, the Navy Marine Mammal Lab in Hawaii was trying to adopt some of these same training techniques for complex uh, uh, contingent type behavior, um, cognitive type things, um, in the work that they were doing with their animals that they use for mine hunting and recovering lost objects and things like that. And um, they also had a research branch that was looking at echolocation. And I was very interested in the relationship between echolocation, which is 
hearing, but it's more than hearing in a way because the animal makes the sound. So it's an active sense. The animal decides when it's going to get an echo and it shapes what kind of an echo it gets by the sound that it makes and the way that it makes it and so on. Um, so interested in, in seeing how that sensory information gets fused with other sensory information. So uh, I went and, and worked at the Navy lab in Hawaii and I was doing a, a fairly simple, as it, we thought it was simple, um, task which was a cylinder wall thickness discrimination. So it's a way of testing echolocation. Uh, you have a cylindrical object, in this case it was aluminum, with, uh, it looks the same on the outside, but the interior can be varied by boring different size holes in it. So only by echolocation could the animal figure out if something's different. Because from the outside it looks the same. So I was doing that, what we thought was a simple experiment. And then I was doing some training of dolphins in uh, like acoustic cues related to visual cues and back again, that kind of thing. Um, and I did that for about two or three years. And then they closed the lab and moved us all to San Diego. <laughs> so everything was in, in turmoil. Uh, one of my animals stayed in uh, uh, Hawaii, the false killer whale who was doing the uh, cylinder wall thickness discrimination. So she stayed out there. I came to San Diego. And uh, one of the other animals I was working with who was doing the cognition and learning stuff came to San Diego with me. And so I kind of continued that work uh, but I needed uh, other things in my portfolio. So um, at the time, there was a, a, a program for, um, this was during the uh, uh, Clinton administration, and they had this sort of uh, swords to plowshares program of using military technology that had been important in the Cold War. So this is 91, 92, 93. Um, using it for other purposes. It wasn't needed anymore for the Cold War. So I got involved with this project to use um, Navy listening uh, systems that they had used to listen for Soviet submarines to listen to whales. Um, several people, Chris Clark, Bill Watkins, had um, used this, these systems in the past. Um, so we knew you could hear whales with low-frequency voices um, using that technology, um, but we hadn't really exploited the potential of the thing. So I proposed an idea um, where we would listen to um, humpback whales as they migrated from Hawaii to Alaska and then Alaska back to Hawaii. Well, I called it a river of song because they sing, they practice singing sort of up and back and, and you could hear them from hundreds of miles away using these sophisticated listening stations. And then to confirm the performance of, of the listening system by doing visual um, encounters with the animals, so we had some survey effort in aircraft and vessels. Um, and then further confirmation and, and doing some things about how well the system localizes animals and so on by tagging some animals with Bruce Mate. So we had tagged animals, we had uh, animals that we would follow visually, and then we had animals that we were monitoring acoustically. And we would also uh, fly these uh, P3 uh, airplanes that can drop sonobuoys, listening sonobuoys, and so we'd get a, a localization on the acoustic listening thing. We'd fly out, we'd drop sonobuoys, and then more precisely try to localize and find the whales and then confirm with a visual sighting. It was a very ambitious kind of project. But it sort of melded that field and, and lab and my interest in sensory processes and behavior. Uh, and it was about at that time, about 93, 94, 
that a job uh, came available at the Office of Naval Research, which is a research funding organization, sort of like uh, NSF. It gives grants to universities and so on. And they were very interested in acoustics, effects of man-made sound on marine mammals, um, and also the biosonar aspect. So because I kind of had a foot in both fields, um, animal behavior, behavioral responses to things in the environment, sounds, and so on, and the biosonar experience, um, I got that job, and that was in 94. And I did that for the next well, almost 14 years. Um, and uh, the program went very well. It was a very exciting time, funded in research in all different kinds of areas, and, and that really reflects my interests. I have very broad interests. So I, you know, it's like I kind of felt like a kid in a candy store. You know, some of this and some of that and some of something else. Um, research in developing new kinds of tags for, for animals, and so uh, we developed these acoustic data logging tags. You could actually sort of ride along with the animal and listen to what the sounds it was making and to what it was hearing around it. That was fun. Um, a lot of hearing research, um, how animals hear, how they use the sound, um, behavioral response of animals to sound, uh, as well as uh, response to other things in their environment. Trying to separate out responses to sound to responses to other environmental factors. You know, it was we follow animals around in the ocean. It's always kind of a puzzle. Where are they going and why are they going there? It tells us something about how little we understand the ocean environment that, that to us it's a mystery. They just seem to be wandering at random. And of course they aren't. Um, you can't do that and make a living anywhere. So um, they know what they're doing. They know where they're going and they know why they're going there. Uh, but it's still kind of a mystery to us. So it was very exciting to kind of start taking that puzzle apart and say, are they after food? Is the water too cold for them? Are they moving to a warmer water area? Are they following the currents? Are the currents telling them to get out of there? Um, just all the aspects of their environment that matter to them that we really don't understand at all. Um, so that was a lot of fun and very exciting too. Um, and I just felt that when you do something like that, a, a research funding program, you should come in fresh, you should do it for a while, and when it's not fresh for you, when the science is kind of progressing and expanding and growing and changing, you should get out and let somebody new go in to keep the thing alive and kind of churning like science does. Um, I was really concerned about being there 20 or 30 years and funding 20 or 30 year old science. Uh, of course, everybody thinks they won't do that, but how do you know when too much is too much. So I sort of set a deadline of 10 years for myself. I missed it by a little bit. <laughs> but I said, okay, uh, chance to get out here. I came to the Marine Mammal Commission um, uh, because they needed a new scientific program director. Their existing scientific program director, Tim Reagan, had uh, taken the executive director's job, so there was this vacancy. And I'd always been a big believer in the commission in its role in the Marine Mammal Protection Act um, as oversight and leadership and review and so on and so forth. So I thought, well, this is a good opportunity for me to pay my dues and to put myself where, you know, I say, you kind of follow up on my words. Uh, if I think the commission is important, then I owe some service to uh, the commission. So, and I thought it would be an exciting job, given that I like to 
dabble in all kinds of things. So I've only been here a year at the commission, uh, and it's a lot of fun, and I've gotten back into some things that I haven't done for a while, having been focused on acoustics and that kind of uh, thing. But uh, all the issues that, uh, if you work with marine mammals, you have to uh, confront these issues, interactions with fisheries, with other human activities, with pollution, now with climate change, um, endangered species. There are many, many marine mammal endangered species that are teetering on the brink. Uh, we just lost the Baiji, the Chinese river dolphin. Um, even though we knew it was in trouble and even though we knew the nature of the problems for it and so on. So it really, being at the commission really points out um, those areas where we've had successes, recovering gray whales, uh, recovering many of the sea lions and, and other areas where you can see the Marine Mammal Protection Act has worked. Um, and other areas where it doesn't seem to be working, it doesn't quite seem to be enough or in spite of the Marine Mammal Protection Act, we have emerging problems that weren't anticipated by the Protection Act. So uh, for all those reasons, uh, that's how I got here at the Commission. Since we talked to Dr. Gisner way back in 2008, he's now semi-retired, but stays active in the field by conducting research that interests him, as well as writing and presenting on those interests. His most recent research looks at precautionary principle and its problem for complex multivariate models of environmental risk. It's a complicated issue. In a nutshell, this means that protecting and recovering marine mammals isn't as simple as it was 50 years ago. Okay, that wraps it up for today. If you would like to watch Dr. Gisner's complete interview or other scientist HP interviews, then please visit aquaticmammalsjournal.org and click on the Historical Perspectives tab near the top.